This is episode number 47, Do Limits Live in Our Mind or in Our Body, with Alex Hutchinson. Hello, hello, and welcome to The Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you live a high-performance life. In the last couple of years, there's been some really interesting research looking specifically at motivational self-talk. The idea that changing the internal monologue in your mind, changing what you tell yourself, can have a real, measurable, quantifiable, empirical effect on your performance. And the idea here is changing the relationship between what your body is doing and how hard you perceive that effort to be. This relies on this idea that what matters is perception of effort. Thanks for joining us today. Really appreciate you guys being here. And I think you're going to really like today's episode. I'm obsessed with the idea that our mind is as powerful or even more powerful than our physical body. With all my experiences in ultra endurance mountain biking, I've seen over and over that mental toughness and strength really plays a role in how hard you can push yourself and what you believe you are capable of. I was thrilled to find the book Endure, Mind, Body, and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance by Alex Hutchinson. It was jam-packed with really interesting research on whether limits actually live in our mind or in our body. And it was pretty funny because about nine months ago, I designed a stem cap for my bike and you can get them on stemcaps.com. And it actually says limits live in our minds. And I use that a lot as mental motivation. And I also put it on my water bottle. So I thought it was really appropriate that this book came out. I also looked up Alex and learned that he is a National Magazine Award-winning journalist whose work appears in Outside Magazine, The New York Times, The New Yorker, and more. The guy has done a lot. Another funny thing I learned was that he is a very accomplished runner, and running on the Canadian national team was something that he did for a while, and even more interesting... He is Dr. Alex Hutchinson. That's right. He has a PhD in physics. I did not see that one coming. Getting a PhD in physics would be a true test for pain tolerance and endurance. I did my master's degree in electrical engineering, which is basically an applied physics degree, and it is really something else. I can't imagine going the full Monty and doing a PhD in physics and also doing a dissertation. We even talk about that a little bit, and I think that's actually a really interesting part of the podcast, aside from all the great research in his book. I wish I had more time. An hour wasn't nearly enough to cover all the topics that I wanted to cover, and I definitely wanted to geek out a bit more. But in this, t- in this podcast, we talk about a number of things, including pacing and our perception of speed. And the example in the book is why people can speed up at the end of a race. Like you see people who are running a marathon who can sprint at the finish. I know that I found some extra gas at the end of some of my 100-mile mountain bike races. And when you think you're done, you can always find that little extra bit. So why is that? The myth of VO2 max being an indicator of performance. A lot of times people will say that somebody's t- like race time is going to be a certain number based on what their VO2 is. But there's a lot of findings showing that there's way more to race performance than just what your VO2 max is. Physiology testing in a race versus in the lab. Evidence and empirical data about positive self-talk. Now, this is a topic that, I, again, I'm really interested in, and I've had my own personal experience as my own guinea pig, but it's really cool to see that positive self-talk 
actually works. And it's something that you have to exercise. So we talk about that and how self-talk can change perception of things like heat or altitude, how you can train your brain, mental fatigues effect on the physical body. So if your mind is busy, if you think your rest day is is rest if you're working tons of hours or doing something very mentally intensive that actually can fatigue you for your next workout. Um, The brain's perception of hydration, and this was super interesting, so definitely want to listen to that part. And practical tips on how to use these topics for your own performance. So not only do we talk about the research, we try and relay it so that you can actually use it and put it to, to practical use in what you're doing. Big thank you and shout out to Kuat Racks, our podcast sponsor. Kuat makes some pretty awesome racks. They are really lightweight. So if you're like me and you're taking your bike rack on and off the hitch of your car, then it's really helpful to not stress your little wimpy cyclist arms like mine taking your rack off the car. And I think that that's really an important selling point of a rack. And also making sure that your bike isn't going to fall off the rack. My bike shop guy told me that he rides an extra large frame and he had this different rack and his bike actually fell off a rack, but not with Kuat. He got a Kuat rack and he said that his extra large frame fits on the rack, no problem, and the bike isn't falling off. So yeah, you definitely don't want to worry about bad things happening, especially your nice and expensive mountain bike falling or road bike falling off the back of the car while you're driving down the highway. So yeah, you can trust Kuat. It's pretty cool that these guys are out there. So check them out at kuatracks.com. If you're enjoying the show and you want to share it with your friends, take a screenshot and share it on social media and tag myself and tag Alex Hutchinson. He is on Twitter at Sweat Science. And if you want your friends to hear about this, or maybe you don't want them to because you don't want them to get the edge, but tell your friends about the show, guys. It really helps with the growth of it. And it's really cool to get all this information out into the world. I know that I learn a lot from listening to other podcasts and get good beta on what books to read. So definitely share the show. If you want to see more mountain bike radness and all the cool places I'm riding, I'm trying to be more diligent about uploading my rides to YouTube. So I have a YouTube channel. It's Sonia Looney MTB. And I actually do shoot quite a bit of GoPro footage, but it's the editing part that's hard. So if anybody loves editing GoPro and you want to help me edit my videos, I'm, I'm curious and looking around for an editor so that I can take all this great footage that's stuck on all these SD cards and get it out into the world. And last but certainly not least, if you want to support my work financially, I have a Patreon page. It's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Sonia Looney Show. And it's basically a place where you can do crowdfunding to help support causes or projects that you're working on. It's really big in the YouTube community, and I'm trying to just let people know that I have a Patreon page because even as little as five bucks a month makes a humongous difference in the growth of the show. So thank you to those of you who have been supporting my work, and I'm just really thankful for that. All right, let's get into it. Do limits live in our mind, or do they live in our body? With Alex Hutchinson. Welcome, Alex Hutchison, to the podcast. Thanks, Anya. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Yeah, I was really excited when I saw your book. It was pretty funny. I was doing some research on Amazon because I'm thinking about writing my own book, and I was just looking at some of the different categories and what the top books were in the categories, and that's how I actually found your book. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. yeah well, I, I, let, me, let me warn you now. It's, if, if you think that uh, you've encountered endurance before, writing a book is a, it took longer than any race I've ever run, put it that way. That's what I hear. <laughs> I, I heard it's the ultimate challenge. 
it definitely requires, I mean, in a sense, I guess you could say endurance athletes are, are well suited to it because it requires a, a lot of patience and a lot of delayed gratification. But you know, in all seriousness, it's also, it's a great chance to really dig into a topic that interests you. So I, I wish you all the best on that journey if you choose to embark on it. Yeah. So how is writing a book different from writing features and columns? Because you do quite a bit of that for, is runner, is it Canadian running and is it also for outside? Yeah, these days I'm doing most of my writing for Outside as well as the Globe and Mail and Canadian Running Magazine. But I also, I'm a freelancer, so I write for a lot of other publications too. And in the past, I was with Runner's World for about five years. So yeah, how's, how's a book different from that? Well, one, a friend of mine said it's like a difference between uh, you know, digging a well versus uh, you know scratching out some puddles with a stick. I mean, one thing is the time. Obviously, you have to go way, way deeper and you have to have a lot more information for a book. What I found is also it's like, so this is actually my third book, and the previous two books have been broken down into little chunks. Like my last book was sort of 101 or 111, I guess, Q&As about common fitness questions. And it's one thing to write a, a bunch of self-contained little nuggets. It's a different thing to try and sustain an idea, to develop an idea over the course of like 300 pages. And so I found that to be, I mean, it's a mental challenge. It's also a logistical challenge, trying to keep all your notes in order and trying to figure out where you're going and trying to remember what it is you said on page 60. Like there were times, there's a couple of places I caught after having written a complete draft and then going over it and like, this sounds familiar. Oh, wait, I tell the same story in like chapter three and chapter 10, like the exact same story. And I totally forgotten because it's such a long, you know, it's not like you start on a Monday and you finish Thursday. It's like, oh, 10 months ago, I told that story in chapter three and I totally forgot. So anyway, that's, that. those are some of the differences, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a different beast and also, with a magazine story, you send it off to a magazine and, and then they take care of publishing it. With a book, it's kind of, it's still your baby and it's your responsibility to kind of get it out there and help it see the world. Yeah, and I, I was reading about you some more and I saw that you have your PhD in physics. Yeah, yeah, that's, a, feels like a long time ago. That's why I started out like after in university, I studied physics and I, I actually stayed in physics till I was about 28. And at that point, I, I was kind of, you know, there were things I really liked about physics, but it just didn't seem like quite the right fit for me. I could tell that the people I was working with uh, had more of a passion for it than I did. And I kind of, I envied that. I, I wanted to be doing something that I felt passionate enough about. Like, you know, I, we'd work for like 12 hours a day in the lab. And then the next morning, someone would be like, hey, Alice, did you see that article in physics today? I'd be like, no, of course I didn't. I, you know, there's no way I was going home and reading more about physics, but they, they had that passion. And so I thought I, I made a switch to journalism. I went back and did a, a journalism degree in the hopes that I would be able to end up writing about things that I was passionate enough about that when the workday was done, I was, you know, going and reading more about them in the evening that, that because it was just kind of fun. And, and I'm lucky enough that it's, it's more or less worked out that way that I, you know, the, the line between work and play for me or work and, and leisure is really murky because for work, I'm reading stuff or thinking about stuff or talking to people that I would be thrilled to read about or talk to, even if it wasn't my job. Yeah, I actually really love this story because I have a similar story. I have my master's degree in electrical engineering and I was in the PhD program and was like, okay, I'm not on the same level of interest as all of my peers around me. And I was actually really interested in writing. So I started writing features about some of my mountain bike adventures. And I didn't go back to school for um, a journalism degree, but I, I totally can relate with all the things you just said. And I was thrilled whenever I saw on your website, please don't ask me to take an undergraduate physics exam because I, <laughs> I would totally flunk out myself if I had to go back and take any of those, those courses or <laughs> tests. 
Yeah, it's definitely, like I said, it feels like a long time ago. Um, <laughs> I do think that there are a lot of things that have stuck with me and I'm sure have stuck with you too in terms of approach to the world, approach to questions of data and how, just thinking logically and things like that. So I think getting a scientific training, I, I never think of the, the years I spent there as a waste or anything, but I don't I don't use Newton's laws in, in anything that I write about these days. And, uh, and yeah, boy, it would be... Even a first year physics exam, I think, would be pretty scary. And, and when I think about trying to write like a second or third year, let, let alone a fourth year physics exam, it would be a, it would be a real shock to the system. But I've, you know, it was a, it was a fun intellectual challenge at the time, and, and I think, you know, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't do it differently if I was, if even if I had a time machine. Yeah, and I was thinking how whenever you had to do your dissertation, that skill set would be really helpful for writing and writing a book and doing research and presenting research too, and in a way that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, and that was one of the sort of red flag or, you know, I don't know if it was a green flag or a red flag or checkered flag or whatever the flags. <laughs> there was a flag when I was writing. My, everyone always warned me that, you know, writing up your, your dissertation is like the worst part of a PhD. And uh, and I actually kind of enjoyed it. It was like I, I enjoyed it more than I had enjoyed the experimental part. And I thought, you know, maybe I should pay attention to this weird fact. If I like the challenge of trying to take, you know, this fairly complex esoteric material and figuring out how to convey it to an audience who hasn't spent the last few years immersed in it. So, it, you know, not a completely general audience, but to a more general audience. I found it a fun challenge and the, the, I found the communication aspect of it. I, I, I enjoyed it. And so that was a pr even because I hadn't done any like student journalism or I didn't really have journalism experience when I made the decision to become a journalist. But that weird fact that I'd actually enjoyed writing up my dissertation was one of the sort of things that gave me confidence that I might actually enjoy this field. So what did your family say when you said, okay, like I got my PhD in physics, whatever, I'm going to be a writer now. <laughs> <laughs> they were surprisingly supportive. And there's a little bit of precedent here. My dad was an engineer from Alberta who in his 20s worked in the, the oil fields as an oil field and engineer. I think he was about the same age as me when he was maybe in his late 20s. He decided that actually what he wanted to do was go to theological college. And he ended up studying at Queens and then becoming a professor of ethics and religious studies. So, and he had started out as an engineer. And my, my older brother, who's five years older than me, he started out as a, a mathematician. He, he was in the PhD, you know, he did a master's in math and was on the road to a PhD when he decided actually he'd like to be an, a librarian or an archivist. So he's now the, the archivist at the University of Saskatchewan. So there is this precedent of people starting out on the, the science path, which I think often happens. You kind of feel like, well, if you can do science, you should. You know, maybe that's there's some reasons for that. But for my dad and my my brother and me, we all came to a realization at some point in our 20s that actually our interests lay elsewhere. So so uh, I was very lucky that I had family support. And, you know, like, you know, not to wander too far down this path, but I was also lucky that after my Ph.D., when I was really trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I was able to move back in with my parents for a year and I was focusing, you know, nominally my job at that point, I was focusing on running. I decided I wanted to run full time, but really what I was doing was, was taking some space to try and figure out where I wanted to go with my life. And I, you know, I'm really conscious of how lucky I am to have had that opportunity to think about things because I think I didn't go straight into journalism after that. I actually went back into physics for a couple of years, but that opportunity to think about things really gave me the chance to figure out what I wanted to do. And I think it's what led to me eventually realizing that, yeah, journalism was what I wanted to do. So it was, uh, it's definitely even looking back, it's hard to sort of recreate, how did I actually make that weird decision to leave, you know, abandon a career and go into journalism, but having family support was a big part of it. 
Yeah, I think that's a really commendable thing that you did because a lot of times people will say, like, even to me, which I did not go down the path nearly as far as you did, like, oh, well, how did you put all that time into something and then just walk away from it? And I think it takes a lot of courage to do that because there's this path that you've already worked on, you've already gone down it, and you could just keep going or you could create a new path. Do you think that running gave you the confidence and even the mindset to do that? Yeah, I think the lessons from running applied in a bunch of different ways, and and some of them were explicit. So one of the things I knew was that if I went to journalism, it would be a tough road. Like the, the truth is that journalism is an industry that's really struggling right now in, in terms of adapting to the, the decline in ad revenues from print and the shift to digital. So, you know, journalism is a tough road, and I knew that at the time. And so I had to think like okay, I'm pretty far down this physics path and far enough down to be confident that I could make a go of it and probably, you know, have a career as an academic physicist. And if I give that up, what am I, what are the benchmarks going to, how am I going to define success as a journalist? And so I thought really carefully about what my experience had been like as a runner, because of course, in running and in all endurance sports, you, you set goals and some of those goals may be, you know, outlandish and some of them may be feasible. But the sort of what I've learned, at least, or what I experienced is that as soon as you achieve a goal, like you may set a goal that's like, man, the world would be amazing if only I could do X. And then when you do X, you feel like, oh, you don't feel quite as fulfilled. You feel like that was great. And I think I can do Y now. And once you do Y, you think, I think I can do Z. So like for me, through high school and university, I just thought I would basically die and go to heaven if I could just make one national team. That was like, my absolute dream, dream, dream. And it, and it wasn't until I, I didn't make any junior teams, even though I was training pretty seriously. It wasn't until my, after my fourth year of university, after I'd finished undergrad, that I made my first national team. And it was amazing. It was like one of the highlights of my life. But it's like, at the moment I made that team, I was already, which was for the World University Games, I was already looking ahead and thinking, I think I can make Commonwealth Games next year, which I didn't. And, you know, obviously the big goal was the Olympics. And I didn't make the Olympics. And so by the time I made the switch to journalism, I, I switched to journalism just after my second Olympic trials. And I'd been, I had a stress fracture just before that or three months before that race. So I already kind of knew I was out of the running. And so I knew, so I had, I had this context of, I'd gone through this running career. I'd been competing seriously for over a decade and I achieved some goals that I never thought I would. And I'd not achieved some goals that I'd really, really hoped I would. But I looked back at my running career, even though I was finishing on kind of a down note with an injury and, and a disappointing performance at the Olympic trials. It's like, this was like the most you know meaningful thing I've done in my life. It was amazing because I, I was able to come to that point. Where, you know, we, we all hope that you can appreciate the journey and not just the destination. But I think in the end, for me, that was really true of running, which, which was that I felt it was amazing to be pursuing tough goals. I loved that I was trying to make the Olympics. And even though I didn't make the Olympics and frankly didn't come all that close, it was still an amazing journey to be on. And I was able to appreciate the steps along the way. And so I made a direct comparison between that and journalism. And I thought, you know, someday I'd love to write a best-selling book. I'd love to get published in the New Yorker. I'd love to do this, that, and the other. And as I was contemplating this, you know, as a prospective journalism student, I was thinking the odds of doing any of those things are really low. So what's going to happen? What's my, what happens if I don't make those? And I had to think about, will I enjoy the journey of trying to tell good stories and tell them in whatever medium I managed to get them in, you know? And, and I decided to myself that, yeah, I was pretty sure I would, that 
in physics, I didn't have a sort of holy grail that I was really interested in in moving towards. So it was more just about the present and like, what am I doing today? Do I like today? Because I didn't really have this something I was moving towards. And that was unlike running. And I thought in journalism, I can have that. I can have these sort of things off in the distance that I'm working towards that will give meaning to even when I'm not enjoying the day to day. And so after journalism school, I went to I had an internship at the Ottawa Citizen as, a, as the sort of lowest man on the totem pole, a general assignment reporter. And I did a lot of stuff that I didn't necessarily love for its own sake. I don't love like there's a car accident, go knock on the door of the family and ask, you know, how they feel about their son just being killed. I hated that stuff, actually. But it felt good or tolerable or acceptable in the context of having a goal that I wanted to achieve. So that's a very long answer to your question. But I guess what I would say is the most direct connection I saw is in this idea of having a, a staircase of goals and of actually getting real satisfaction from being on that staircase and not necessarily just making it to the top, which I think you, you have to have if you're going to persist in an endurance sport. Yeah, I think that's a really great comment and a really hard thing to do because people who are achievement focused or just people who love growth, you have to pick something to strive for. And then I know everybody's experienced what you said. It's like you work really hard towards something and then you get it and then it's not nearly as satisfying as you thought it would be. So being able to actually take a step back from that and say, okay, as a journalist, I might not get to the top of that staircase, but I know 100% that it's going to be worth climbing each individual step and just to see how far I can get. So that's such a great lesson. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's a defect. Maybe I should <laughs> focus more on learning to be happy with what I've got. But I've found that I guess what running really taught me is that I I enjoy being on the road and and having something that I that's worth pushing towards and and with running again, it's like I so I started in high school and so I had the experience of you know, multiple generations of runners that I ran with or competed against. And the attrition rate is pretty high. There's not many people I was competing with when I was 15 who were still competing when I was 28. And I think one of the switches that I was able to, or the mental switches that I was able to make was to not just be all about, am I going to win this race at the end of the season, but to to understand that whether I win or whether I won or lost or whether I achieved my goal or didn't achieve my goal, if I could get satisfaction from knowing that I kind of left it all out there. And again, it's a cliche, but it's, you know, I think it has has some power. If you can get satisfaction from that journey, then the whole process becomes a pleasure sort of independent of the details of how each individual race goes. Not that you stop caring about each, each individual race, but it's just no longer the, the, the be all and end all. Yeah, I think it's the topic of contentment versus complacency and, and where do they come from? And can you have one without the other or are they the same thing? And I love that you can still be content because of the effort that you put down. And that doesn't mean that you're complacent if you don't get to that goal that you went that you were striving for. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And it just sort of makes me think of arguments I had with, with teammates sometimes, some of whom were a little more hardcore than I, who would <laughs> just never be happy with anything but complete success and, you know, never wanted to be friends with their competitors. It's all about winning. And it's like, yeah, m maybe that f fuels your flame to burn a little bit brighter for a little while, but are you going to still be there two years ago or two years later from and now? Are you still going to be getting pushing? And the answer, I think, was often no. Those people didn't find a sort of sustainable way to keep growing. Yeah. And I think that those are the people from, I love Carol Dweck's book mindset and I talk about it all the time, but I think that the fixed mindset, that's that person who just, they only care about the end goal. Yeah. And it's a, it's a real pitfall that, and in the long run, you, you achieve more if you're able to stay in there for a longer time. 
Endurance in life. I love it. So let's get in your book. Like, I didn't really know what to expect when I opened it and started reading. I tend to leave the book as a surprise whenever I start a new book. And I was, I loved it. Like I listened to the audiobook. And I was laughing because I'm a transplant into Canada. I'm an American and my husband's Canadian. And I'm always picking out all these little linguistic things that are just slightly different. And one of them is instead of again, Canadians say again, and all these different little words. And I realized that the person reading the book was also Canadian. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, he was, you know, I'll tell you the funny backstory there. They they picked this actor to who I have to mention was had a part in Casino Royale. So it's like a James Bond oh, actor to read my cool. book. I think he was like bus driver number two or something. Oh. <laughs> but uh they picked him and they sent me, they were like, here's the guy we've picked, Robert G. Slade. Here's a, a voice. Here's a, an audio sample just to make sure you like his voice. And the sample they sent me was this like Southern twang <laughs> talking about, well, and then Ma came in from the barn and like, I can't do a Southern twang. But I was like, are you kidding me? You're going to have someone read the book in that accent? I, I can't even imagine it. And so I Googled the guy and I realized Oh, he does accents. So for some reason, they'd send an, a clip of him reading some like Civil War, uh, you know, epic from the, the, the South or something <laughs> in a hilarious Southern voice. And it turns out he actually does amazing accents, but his natural voice, he's from Winnipeg. And so, you know, my one request was like, yeah, sounds great. Just have him read it in a like his native Winnipeg accent, because that'll be the one that's closest to mine. That is hilarious. I love that. <laughs> Yeah, it was definitely a surprise. I was like, uh, I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like critical, but I, <laughs> that doesn't sound like how I, I hear the book in my head. But fortunately, yeah, he, I think he did a great job. All right. So the book is about exploring the limits of human performance, basically, and our perception of our performance and our pain. And I think it busts apart a lot of myths and old school thinking that isn't brought up in the way that you delivered it. Yeah. I mean, it's, we have a lot of assumptions about what what endurance is, right? Like, so I, you know, I never studied the physiology of endurance when I was an athlete, but I I read a lot about it in books and magazines and stuff. So I had this idea of what defined our limits of you know whether it's VO2 max and lactate threshold and things like that. And it was a total shock to me when I started writing about the science of endurance to discover that th there was this sort of new stream of research saying we have to incorporate the brain that limits are a little more negotiable than we might have thought. And so it turns out it's a super controversial area. And, and, and anything you write about that, it's like, people will argue that, oh, we already knew that, or it's obvious, or it's not obvious, or it's wrong, or it's right. And I think hopefully it comes out in the book that it's a, it's a living and active area of science. But I think, as you said, I think it, it sort of goes against a lot of what our implicit assumptions are, that which is, there is this kind of every, you know, Alex is capable of running a marathon in such and such a time, and that's his physical limit. And maybe he'll fall short of it because he doesn't have a good day, but we, we can quantify his actual physical limit. Whereas the truth is, we're a long way from that. No way, we really don't know what any given person's physical limits are. Yeah, I actually was really frustrated whenever I read that people were looking at someone's VO2 and then they were estimating what their marathon time would be. Like if someone put that limit on me, that just would feel gross. And it would just feel like, well, hey, like there's there's more to it. I'm not just a machine. Like there's more to it than that. And I'm sure that lots of people would feel that way if someone looked at them, like someone looked at their power numbers on a bike and their weight and was like, okay, well, you're only going to be able to go this fast. Well, it's interesting. I had I was at an event a month or two ago with Simon Whitfield, the Olympic, the former Olympic triathlon gold medalist, and uh, we were talking about this stuff. And he said, you know, he was he was at the top of his sport for you know well over a decade 
decade and a half. And so he was in the national team program and there's all this physiological testing that goes on to track their progress and, and it's more or less compulsory. But he said throughout his career, whenever he had to do a VO2 max test, he would either step off early or if they really wanted him to, to stay in the end, he'd say, don't tell me the results. I don't want to know. Do not tell me anything about what my VO2 max is. That's not helpful to me. I don't want to have some limit in my head. So exactly what you're saying. And that was interesting to me. I hadn't really thought of it that way. I was always curious to know what my VO2 max was. But for Simon, he wanted to feel unlimited when he stepped to the start line of a race. And in a sense, knowing this limit and feeling like it would carry some sort of implied limitation that you're only this fast and no faster. That was something he was just not interested in. And he went out of his way to avoid being told these limits. Yeah. And I also think that it's interesting that people on the race course are different than people in a lab and there's motivation as a factor. And like, I know myself, I don't perform the same on a trainer on a bike with a bunch of wires hooked up to me compared to how I perform outside. So like, what is some of the research that you guys have read and reported on about that? Yeah, it's definitely the case that, you know, when you compare a workout to a race and just any race to a really big race, you know, physical limits change. And that, I mean, one of the, when I give talks on this stuff, one of the, I often start out with just putting up a slide from an old, old study, a very simple one from the 1980s, where they just asked people to sit against a wall with no chair. So you need to do the sort of wall sit exercise for as long as they could and timed how long they could last. And they, they did it over and over again with different volunteers offering, you know, anything from a few cents to a dollar or two for every 20 seconds that people could stay sitting against the wall. And, you know, the results are obvious, right? Like the more money you offered, the longer people were able to sit against the wall. But the implications are really important because it says that when you do fall off the wall, if you're sitting against the wall, the point at which you say, okay, I, I can no longer sit here anymore, I'm gonna collapse. And that can't be because your muscles have reached a limit or because, you know, your heart rate is maxed or your lactate. That can't be because if we offered you more money, you'd be able to stay for longer. So that tells you that the actual limits have to be in the brain. They have to depend on motivation and, and factors like that. So, you know, it's clear that that's the case. Now, I should step back for a second and say, I'm not here to bury physiological testing. It, it has value and it does impart knowledge. And so if you were to take a hundred random people from the street and say, I want to know who's going to be the best marathoner among them, I would say, okay, well, let's head to the physiology lab. Let's ch check their VO2 max, their lactate threshold and their running economy. And I'm going to tell you with pretty good accuracy who, what the order of finish among these hundred people will be in a marathon. Like it does a pretty good job. Now, the problem is that's because it's a, it's, comparing people who are totally unfit with people who are very fit and all across the spectrum. So the physiology is really the dominant factor. But if you take a bunch of people at the start line of a race, people who have all trained, who all have some you know, ability in the sport, and you say, who's going to win the race? Then the physiology testing won't tell you anything. You can't, you can't go to the Olympic start line and, and predict who's going to win based on their VO2 max and lactate threshold and running economy, because there, everyone has that minimum threshold. So the physiology matters up to a point, but once you get to relatively evenly matched people, it, it, it basically tells you nothing. So, so I guess I, I just wanted to make that point clear that it's not like it's not like VO2 max is is a complete fantasy. It matters, but it doesn't matter once you're talking about a relatively well matched group of athletes. Yeah, and I think that physiology testing is a really good guide as an individual to just see what you need to work on. 
And in particular, like the type, the type that I do, it's, it's a really cool type of testing here in Kelowna, BC, and they test your respiratory system and they even have a device that they invented. So I'm going to be doing a podcast later about this, but it looks at your respiratory system, your, your neuromuscular system, your heart. It looks at every system as an individual system so that say you have a high VO2 max, but your, your leg, your muscle oxygen level, like you're not able to deliver that oxygen to your legs. So like systemically you could be fine. You could be not desaturating, but then that muscle that like your quads might be desaturating. So like, I think that that's an example of VO2, not necessarily translating because some people have very low saturation levels, whereas others don't. Yeah. And, and it's also useful again, on an individual level in terms of tracking you can see your progress and you can see which areas of your physiology are improving and which maybe aren't. And so if that, that may tell you how you should adjust your training. So there, there's definitely value, but what it doesn't tell you is where your ultimate limits are. So it's like you said, there's, there's some great opportunities to learn stuff about yourself from testing, as long as you don't mistake that for being the sort of ultimate delimiter of your physical capacity and of your racing performance. Yeah. So I thought that it was interesting whenever you set out to write this book, you went to South Africa and you were going to just pretty much just spend all the time with Tim Noakes and talk to him about his research. And then it kind of grew from there. Can you talk about Tim Noakes a little bit if, in case people aren't familiar? Yeah. So Noakes is a, a really larger than life figure and a guy who uh, who's not afraid of controversy. <laughs> and really, really since the early 80s, he's been kind of rattling the, the bars of the cage in exercise physiology, he was one of the first guys to point out that hyponatremia could be dangerous, that drinking too much could be a problem. So he was a real strong advocate for just drinking when you're thirsty instead of guzzling Gatorade at all times. And, you know, this was in the early 80s that he, he started reporting on that. And it wasn't until about 20 years later that people started to pay attention to the risks of hyponatremia. And he's also, he came up with a theory called the central governor theory or the central governor model, which basically... You know, there's been a lot of variations and flavors and updates on this, but the basic idea of the central governor is that you're not limited. In a race, you don't reach your limits because your muscles can't go any further because your heart's about to explode. You reach a limit because your brain is worried that you you might be about to encounter one of these physical limits. So your brain always holds you back from for your own safety from getting to a full true physical limit. And that's a way of sort of incorporating the brain into our understanding of endurance. Again, that th those ideas have... So that seemed so powerful to me because it seemed to fit with my own experience as an athlete. It always felt like, you know, if I was running a 5K, my 4K would be the slowest and then I'd be able to speed up in the 5K. And it's like, why is that? I'm, I'm not trying to slow down in the 4K. Why, why am I being held back? Well, Noakes would argue that it's your brain is being cautious because it doesn't, and it's only when it's when you see the finish line that you know you're about to stop that it sort of will release some of this energy. So anyway, I found Noakes' work really compelling on an experiential level. And I found that some of the science to be very interesting too. The problem, unfortunately, is that nothing ever ends up being quite as simple as as you hope. And, and, and in a sense, another way of putting that is it gets harder and the more you know about a topic, the harder it is to tell a simple and compelling story about it. So, if, you know, if, if I had just spent a couple hours on the phone with Tim Noakes and read a couple of his papers, I could have written a great book telling, explaining how he had completely revolutionized exercise physiology and here's what our new understanding was and here's what you should do. But if you go looking deep enough, if you start digging, you find that there's places where maybe the picture is a little more complicated that, oh, well, you know, if you inject a nerve block into, into someone's spine so that they can't feel feedback from the body, how does that change their endurance? And does that, you know, 
How does the brain's role change if it doesn't have any feedback? And you start to look at some of these experiments and the picture gets more nuanced that maybe sometimes you really are hitting true physical limits or maybe that there's other ways of explaining the brain's role. And so I ended up encountering work by another guy named Samuel Marcora, who has a, a sort of a rival theory that he calls the psychobiological model, where he, his argument is that you don't need a central governor, that really all, that, that when you slow down or quit in a race, that's a conscious decision. And it's just based on the balance between your perceived effort, so how, how hard your exercise feels, which takes into account everything that's going on in your body, and how motivated you are. So it's just motivation versus effort. And so that's a much simpler theory. Whether it's right or not is another question. And, and as I go through in the book, there's all sorts of, you can look at different situations. And sometimes it seems like one might be the way. Sometimes it seems like the other might be the way. Sometimes it seems like the old physical model is, is, is all you need. And so the conclusion I ended up coming up with is that, first of all, you know, there's still more science to come. It's, an, it's a living area of science. But what it looks like is that we shouldn't get too wrapped up with trying to find an ultimate universal theory of endurance, that it's really context dependent. And the limits that you face if you're a free diver trying to hold your breath for 11 minutes might be different than the limits you face, you face if you're, you know, a mountain climber trying to climb Everest without oxygen or a, you know, an explorer trying to walk across the Antarctic. That, that you have to, instead of worrying too much about the, the big theories, you have to just say, okay, in this specific situation, what's holding me back? And how do we bring together the role of the body and the role of the mind to understand what those limits are? Yeah, I really like thinking about effort versus the perception of effort. And it was extra motivating for me because I was trying to do some hard training and I was, it hurt, of course. And I was thinking, is this actual pain or is this me just telling myself that this hurts? And something that I use a lot as an ultra endurance mountain biker for mental toughness, especially is positive self-talk. Like I actually designed a stem cap for my bike and it says limits live in our minds because I really think that. Yeah, there's a certain level where your body will fail, but I think that for most people, your mind is what is going to fail first. So I'd love to hear about some of the things you wrote about in the book about positive self-talk and how that made a difference in some of these tests. Yeah, for sure. And I should start by saying that, you know, self-talk isn't a new idea. Um, back when I was in university in the 1990s, we had a sports psychologist who worked with our track team and who taught us a bunch of you know self-talk interventions to stop negative thoughts, and, and we you know we thought it was a, a total joke. We <laughs> we were forced to th sit through these sessions, but we didn't take them seriously, and we kind of laughed them off. So, in a sense, for me, part of this process of writing the book has been going through the literature and finding finding out that some of the things, not everything, but some of the things that I didn't take seriously in the past actually deserve uh, closer attention. And in the last couple of years, there's been some really interesting research looking specifically at, at motivational self-talk, at the idea that changing the internal monologue in your mind, changing what you tell yourself, can have a real, measurable, quantifiable, empirical effect on your performance. And the idea here is, is, like you were saying, it's basically changing the relationship between what your body is doing and how hard you perceive that effort to be. So, this relies on this sort of idea that what matters is perception of effort. And so it's not that your heart rate or your body temperature doesn't matter. They don't directly stop you or slow you down. It's, it's your brain's interpretation of how those signals, of all those signals from the rest of your body. So if you can, if you're telling yourself, uh, you're doomed, this is so hard, you should just quit. 
that changes how your brain is interpreting the signals from the rest of your body so that your assessment of how hard am I working, is it 7 out of 10 or is it 8 out of 10? You're more likely to think of it as an 8 out of 10. You're more likely to feel it as an 8 out of 10 because you're framing it in a negative light. Whereas if you can change that self-talk so that you're saying, okay, I've trained for this, I can do this, I'm ready for this, you're interpreting exactly the same physical signals from your body. You haven't changed anything about your lactate levels or anything. You're, you're interpreting exactly the same signals in a different way. And if it's ultimately your sense of effort that determines whether you slow down or speed up, then that change is significant. And so there have been a bunch of studies recently where, or a few studies, where they give people a couple of weeks of motivational self-talk training and see that, it, yes, it enhances endurance. The most interesting one to me was one done by Stephen Chung at uh, Brock University. And he specifically looked at self-talk training for cycling in the heat. So he had cyclists come in and do a, a time to exhaustion test in his heat chamber. And then he gave half of them a couple of weeks of, uh, of motivational self-talk training, which involved, first of all, becoming aware of what things they were saying to themselves in the heat or in the stress of a race. And then in this case, they were specifically trying to look for ways of dealing with the heat. So instead of saying, I'm boil, if they were saying, you know, I'm, oh, it's so hot in here, I'm boiling up, I'm going to die. It was getting rid of those sorts of phrases and finding some ways of rephrasing that or thinking of something different, like I've prepared for this, I'm ready for this, I can push through it then practicing those in training so that they become sort of second nature and then using them in another time to exhaustion test. And sure enough, the, the cyclists who had the, height, the, the self-talk training were able to improve their performance significantly. I think it was from like eight minutes to 11 minutes on the self-talk test. But the really interesting thing was that in addition to better performance, they were able to push their core temperature a little higher. It was about 0.3 degrees Celsius, so half a degree Fahrenheit higher uh, by the end of the, the time trial. So they were able to Thanks to just thanks to changing the words in their head, they were able to dig deeper into their physiological reserves. But they were also, the twist is that they were also reporting their perceived effort. And their perceived effort didn't change. It was the same. So they were pushing, as far as they could tell, they were pushing to the same degree. But because the self-talk had changed the way they were interpreting the signals from the rest of their body, they were digging deeper into their reserves well without feeling like they were working harder. So that's kind of like a, a slam dunk for me that, hey, this is this is something real and it's something that, uh, you know, is worth pursuing for athletes, I think. Yeah, I loved hearing that because I've done lots of races in the heat and yeah, like heat stroke is a real thing. But knowing that if you can just talk to yourself in a different way and you can at least prolong it or you can delay it, the onset of it is pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I'm glad you made that point that, cause the last thing I want to do is convey the impression that <laughs> he, he does it all in your head and it's imaginary. It's like, no, you, you can, you can get yourself in a world of trouble in, in, in heat for sure. And, and other physiological things are real too. I mean, you know, the lactate levels are real and, and so on. There are stop signs, but we run into, to warning signs far before we run into the stop signs. And so either, you know, there's another study in the book that taught where, they just manipulated the thermometer reading. So they had cyclists in a heat chamber, but they had the they changed the thermometer. So the cyclists thought it was a little cooler than it was. So instead of, you know, 90 Fahrenheit, they thought it was 80 Fahrenheit or something like that. And of course, the heat still mattered. Heat's, like you said, heat's real. But they were able to go faster when they thought it was cooler than when they knew it was hot. Because part of our response to heat is mediated by our knowledge and expectation that it's hot. Yeah, so... From a practical application standpoint, like what do you think are some good things people can do to start integrating this type of reframing and mental training so that whenever they want to apply it to whatever sport they're doing, they can execute that? 
Yeah, it's the kind of big picture thing that I that I think is worth kind of focusing on is just the understanding that limits that feel physical are almost always mediated by the brain. There are some very rare exceptions like, okay, free divers can hold their breath until they literally run out of oxygen. So then they can pass out. That's a physical limit. But 99.999% of the time, if I hold my breath, I will run, run into a point where it feels like I literally cannot hold my breath anymore. That's not real. That's carbon dioxide levels in my blood triggering a warning system. That's not oxygen levels. I'm not actually running out of oxygen. And I think that analogy holds true in a, in a ton of contexts. So just knowing that, I think, is helpful, especially in the longer endurance races or contests where you're out there for a long time. It's not one decision. It's not like a treadmill test where it's like you go until finally you make the decision to quit and then boom, you're done. You know, in an ultra endurance mountain bike race, you're kind of making that decision with every pedal stroke as you go. Like you're deciding how far and how fast and how hard you can keep pedaling. And so you have to keep pushing back against those limits. So I think understanding that when it feels like you're at, you're at your limit, that of course it's, you know, that reflects the fact that you're pushing very hard, but it doesn't reflect the fact that your legs are totally physically incapable of going. That can be just a helpful thing to kind of get in your head. The limits are mediated by your brain, not your muscles. Now, as for pr more practical, like takeaways, I, I mean, it's great that you've got some positive self-talk on your bike itself, but I think it's also good to get that in your head. And to do that, it's not something where you can just wake up tomorrow morning and say, you know what, I'm, I'm sick of having negative self-talk. I'm going to be positive because <laughs> these things, th these grooves run pretty deep and they can be hard to change. So I think the first step one is you have to become aware of what it is you do say to yourself in a race. You know, whether it's a race or a hard workout, pay attention to that monologue and write it down as soon as it's done. Because we always think we're going to remember these things, but they kind of fade away, kind of like dreams. So write down what are the thoughts that were going through your head during that race or that that workout and kind of take some time to to analyze them and try and figure out whether they're productive or unproductive, whether they're true or not true. Because, you know, if your self-talk is like, oh, man, I, I, I'm really going to I'm doomed here because I, I hardly did any training this year. I didn't do any long rides. I'm doomed. This is going to be bad. Well, I mean. Maybe that's true, right? Like so if your self-talk is telling you that you didn't prepare adequately, then the solution isn't to change your self-talk, it's to change your training, right? Uh, so you can't just convince yourself that you've done the training. But if the self-talk is more like what we were talking about earlier, if it's like, oh, this hurts so much, I can't do this, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a failure, that's not helpful and it's not true. And so there it's worthwhile to identify those things and try and come up with alternatives to replace them. And then, you know, step two is to think of the alternatives, think of what can you say to yourself that will feel true to you? You know, if you say to yourself, I'm going to win the Olympics and I'm going to grow wings and fly and, you know, I'm going to grow to seven feet tall. None of these things are going to be particularly helpful because you're, you're not going to really believe them. You have to find something that, that rings true to you and that, that has meaning to you. And then once you've done that, you need to practice. You need to apply these things in training and maybe in races over and over again. So that, and, you know, think strategically about when am I going to say this? And at what point in the race am I going to say that? And why, you know, and how is that going to help me at that point? So that then these things come as a sort of second nature, because it, it, again, it's hard to just decide to change your self-talk. Yeah, it's it's a process, I think. And, and I should say, you know, I'm not saying this from the, the other side of the mountain where I've mastered this. This is a, you know, a journey that I'm trying to figure out too, but it's it's a process. And I don't think there's a destination where anyone arrives at where it's all finished. You, you sort of, it's a constant effort to try and make sure your self-talk is helpful, not harmful. 
Yeah, and I, there's something else that I thought was really interesting in the book about hydration and putting in the right fuels. And it was something that if you're thirsty or if your body feels like it needs calories, you can literally swish a drink, like a carbohydrate drink in your mouth and spit it out. And it temporarily will trick the brain into thinking that it actually got that. Yeah. And it, that, I think that's a hugely powerful example of the ways in which the brain is kind of watching out for us that when you slow down, it's not necessarily because your muscles are out of fuel. Sometimes it's because your brain thinks that it's they're going to be out of fuel. And so, like you said, if you swish a sports drink in your mouth and spit it out, your brain senses the presence of calories. It thinks they're on the way and it, and it allows you to go a little faster. Now, so this is something you'll often see these days, uh, marathoners or, or cyclists or triathletes doing late in a race. You know, late in a race is a time when as you know, it, it may be challenging to choke down more calories. You may be pretty sick of whatever you've been taking in. And so you can maybe, you don't want to risk gastrointestinal problems. So by you can trick your brain and, and get some of those benefits in the last, say, half hour of the race. Now, there's a limit to how long you can trick yourself. If you're out there for 24 hours and you start tricking yourself after two hours, at a certain point, you are going to run out of fuel. So it's not a substitute for taking in calories, but it's a supplement that you can use to get beyond the calories that you're able to choke down, you can get a little extra benefit. And you can do that even earlier in the race. Like, let's say you, you stop, you, you're at a drink station or whatever, you, you grab a bottle and you're able to drink half of it. And then you feel like you can't take any more at that particular moment. Well, maybe you can just take another mouthful and swish it in your mouth for 10 seconds and spit it out. And you just get a little bit more benefit than you might otherwise. Yeah, I thought that was really helpful from a practical application standpoint, especially like I feel like it's a lot easier to eat on the bike, but running, eating and drinking is really hard. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, it's a different world. The, the level of, uh, of gastrointestinal disruption with the pounding of running makes it a serious challenge. Uh, you know, I won't go into, you know, further details there, but yeah, you know, you know, it's, it, I mean, I mean, even, even biking, obviously, you know, when you're working hard and when you're out there for a long time, it becomes a, a challenge, but running has that extra mechanical kind of the cement mixer effect of shaking your, shaking your intestines. Yeah, and I actually thought about using that that trick of swishing some water in your or a sports drink in your mouth whenever you feel sick from the heat because on the bike there's lots of times where you feel really sick because it's hot and you stop eating. And I think that if you could just swish that around that I want to try that. I haven't actually um experimented with that yet, but I'm interested. Yeah, and I think it's really a really fascinating sort of insight into how we work and it has practical implications. And it's one of those things where sometimes when people hear this, the pendulum flips and they think, oh, well, all that matters is, you know, having some water in my mouth to prevent me from being thirsty. And there's been a bunch of studies that, that like they're pretty amazing studies where they try and check all the variables. So it's like, OK, what happens if you swish water in your mouth and spit it out? Well, what happens if you swallow water, but then we have a tube down your nose and we suck that water right back out? Oh, man. It does sound awful, but they found that that has an effect, too. So we have sensors in our mouths. We also have sensors in our throats that detect water passing down our throats. And we also have sensors in our stomach that detect stomach fullness. And we also have sensors that in, in the rest of our system that detect essentially the hydration level of our blood. So all of these things add together. It's not that one or the other or the other or the other. It's they're, they're all different ways that the body uses to kind of triangulate how much fluid we have. So you can trick yourself a little bit by using one of them, by swishing water in your mouth, by taking a single gulp of water. You know, a single gulp of water is not going to change your hydration all that much, but it's going to have the sensation of water going down your throat. So that's going to help you feel a little bit better. So there's all these ways that you can trick yourself a little bit, but ultimately you do need to get in some fluids eventually. And like you said, some food too, and getting over that feeling of, nausea or whatever can be uh, really important to make sure you're getting what you need. 
I could literally sit here all day and talk to you about every little detail in this book, but I have, I have just a couple more things that I will bring up. And then I highly encourage everybody to pick up the book because there's so much information in there. And what happens a lot of times is I'm a big audiobook person. I listen to books when I'm writing or when I'm cooking or when I'm doing whatever. And then I end up buying the book hard copy if I really love the book. So it's pretty cool to have that. But I wanted to talk about intellectual labor because there's a great book I love called Peak Performance. And I'm sure you know the book. Yeah. Steve, yeah, Steve Magnus and uh, Brad Sulberg. And the book, something that was a big takeaway from that book for me, and they've actually been podcast guests, is that just because you're resting your body physically from your training, that doesn't necessarily count as rest because if you're like working crazy hours and you're not exercising, you're still not really recovering because there's there's a mental fatigue aspect. And I really loved hearing the research in your book about this and the, the brain training. I think it was called the Makora brain training. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And I'll start with the punchline, which is that I think from a practical perspective, one of the sort of things that I've taken away from this research is that you have to have a mental taper as well as a physical taper if you want to peak performance. So we all know that like from a running perspective, if you're running a marathon, you don't do 100 miles the week before the marathon. You back off to make sure your body's well rested and from all the training you've done. And I think a mistake that certainly I used to make, and I think a lot of people still make, is to not treat your mind with the same respect. And so it might be like, oh, I, I'm only running half as much as usual this week, so I'm going to do my taxes on Saturday and then run a, <laughs> you know, ca catch up on all the other to-do lists. And uh, that tires your mind. And so there's there's fascinating research that shows that relatively small amounts of intellectual labor, as you put it, uh, hurt your endurance performance. So, and this is kind of something we all know intuitively, right? Like for, for me, my job is not physically demanding at all. I can sit at a computer and literally not move for an entire day. And if I, I mean, I try not to do that, but I can. And if I have a story that's due at five o'clock and I file it at 4.59, and then I try and go meet some friends for a run at 5.15, I know that that's, that run is not going to be as good as it normally is. That it, I'm, I'll, if I've been rushing to hit a deadline, that's going to have an an impact on my physical performance, even though I'm not physically tired. And lately, there's been some some research that kind of quantifies that. And what they found is you know, they'll, they'll take 90 minutes of having someone sit at a computer and just you have to, you know, there's flashing letters or numbers or arrows and you tap a button on the keyboard, depending on which letter or number or arrow shows up. So it's really easy, but it requires focus and concentration. And by focusing and concentrating for 90 minutes, what happens is then you get on the bike, you start pedaling, and your perceived sense of effort at a given uh, power output is already higher. Right from the start, it feels like you have to work harder to maintain that pace. And so as a result, then if you do a, you know, a time to exhaustion test, you reach exhaustion earlier because it's feeling harder. And like we were saying earlier, the feeling of how hard it is is really what matters. And so, like I said, I think this tells us the importance of mental recovery. And it tells us the importance, particularly if you're trying to get ready for a race, or a competition of some sort of making sure that you're not just physically recovered, but you're mentally recovered. Ideally, you didn't spend all the day before sitting on a, on a flight or something like that, because even if the flight goes smoothly, it's, you know, going to the airport is stressful. This also, this, this is the sort of corollary to that is, can you train your mental endurance? And that's what this guy, Samuel Marcora has been working on. His idea is like, well, okay, if mental fatigue makes you go slower, 
then maybe it's, you know it's like if we do physically fatiguing tasks day after day, we get physically stronger. That's called training, right? Well, if you can do the mental equivalent of that, what if you do mentally fatiguing tasks every day deliberately that tax the sort of the kinds of focus and response inhibition that you need for good endurance performance? If you do that every day at the computer, will that make you a better marathoner or a better mountain biker, independent of what's going on in your muscles? And he's been testing that with some actually pretty interesting results. But it's still very preliminary results. And my big question about, like, but the suggestion is that, yeah, it actually works. But my big question is, is, okay, it works in random college undergrad volunteers who are doing these studies. Does it work in, in endurance athletes who are already trained? Because if you're on the bike for several hours a day, if you're out running for an hour a day, maybe you're already doing all the mental training that your brain can handle. And maybe doing more is just going to make you tired rather than making you stronger. So I think, I, I think this is fascinating, like, research. But personally, I, I wouldn't suggest to anyone to, to go out and try and like do mentally fatiguing tasks deliberately. <laughs> the one sort of practical part of brain training that I thought was interesting that when I asked Marcora about this, he said, listen, like people get lots of opportunities to do mental fatigue training in the course of their regular lives, whether it's doing a hard run after or a hard workout after a, a hard day at work or, you know, let's say you have a kid who's sick and you're up all night with the kid or you're up half the night with the kid. Are you going to bail on your workout the next day? Because you know it's not going to be as good as it would normally be. Or are you going to go ahead and do it and just consider that mental fatigue kind of the, 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 the mental equivalent of a weighted vest? Oh, it's making the workout harder in a different way. You're not, you're not going as fast as you would have, but you're working hard mentally and you're building that mental fatigue. So that's just something I try and remind myself whenever I'm having a, a sort of crappy workout because other life stresses are getting in the way. I try to make sure I'm mentally recovered before important workouts. But if I'm not, I say to myself, well, today is as much about building mental endurance as it is physical endurance. So I'm not going to stress about whether my physical performance is, is a little lower than usual. Yeah, and I think the hard question here is, well, how do you know if you're doing something that's mentally fatiguing? Like, what if you're playing guitar? Like, you are using your brain, you're using all parts of your brain. Is that mentally fatiguing you for your workout? Yeah, that's a great question. And, I, you know, I, I don't have a, a great answer for that, but I would say you can kind of trust your gut on that. Uh, and I think it's different for different people in the sense that just like going to a cocktail party, right? It's, it's energizing for some people and it's totally draining for other people. And I think those individual differences matter in, in this kind of thing too. For different activities for different people, are, are, some of them are going to suck more energy, more mental energy out of them than others. And so I think you have to kind of get in touch with your own sense of what relaxes you versus what and what leaves you feeling relatively fresh versus what leaves you feeling a little bit drained and numb mentally, even like reading books, right? You can imagine that some books are totally relaxing. Reading a calculus text probably isn't going to feel great, but it may also be that reading a sort of a really, really scary thriller is going to leave you like tense and tight, you know, like, so I, I'm just speculating here, but I, I think you kind of have to get in touch with your own sense of what, uh, like playing a guitar, I would imagine, let's say you play the guitar for half an hour or an hour and, and you enjoy that. And that's just kind of part of your routine and it makes you feel relaxed. That's a, you know, I had a good friend who used to bring his guitar on national team trips around the world because he'd sit in the hotel room, just kind of playing songs and it relaxed him. Practicing the guitar for three hours and playing scales. I bet that would be <laughs> absolutely mentally draining. So it's, you kind of have to start to 
dig into some of that context to figure out what's going to get you to the right level. Yeah. And I also think that it's pretty interesting talking about the potential ability to train your mental endurance, because you'll look at like, cause it's, it's tough in the endurance world. There's a lot of, well, most professional athletes also have to work and you'll see people that actually will work like a full-time job and still train like a professional. And they're still able to perform like a professional. And then you'll see other people who are working part-time and because of that part-time work, they're unable to perform because they're too fatigued for whatever the reason. So I do think that some people are able to handle more mental stress than others. Yeah. And I mean, and this is one of those general observations, like, you know, a good friend of mine, David Epstein wrote a great book called The Sports Gene. I guess it's five years ago now, something. And he wrote that while he was a full-time reporter at Sports Illustrated. So he was doing a lot of like evenings, nights, weekends, writing this book. And it's like, I was working more or less full-time on my book, or at least, you know, with the addition of some journalism, I was working at least half-time on my book. And I just can't imagine, like, I think I'm more sensitive to mental fatigue or something because I couldn't, I can't after dinner at nine o'clock, sit down and do good creative work. Whereas a lot of people, I mean, and Dave is not alone. A lot of people have written books on the side while moonlighting. And, you know, I just don't have it in me to do that. I, I, I wish I did, or, you know, to some extent, but I know I don't. And I, I know, I know David said it was tough, but he, he was able to do it. And so, you know, just because someone else does something or makes it work or makes it seem optimal doesn't mean that it's something that's going to work for you. And so I've had to just sort of accept that for me, if I want to write a book, it needs to be my primary focus. It can't be my secondary focus, not because I'm lazy, but because I just can't do the good work required when I've already done a full day of other work. And training is kind of like that too for me. I I, I was able to train at a high level while I was working a full-time job as a physicist, but the cost was that the mental energy I could devote to my physics was was way, way, way down. I Running was what I cared about. And physics, I was kind of going through the motions to some extent because there's just a finite amount of mental energy you can devote. And looking back, it may be that one of the reasons that physics didn't click for me when I was younger was that it was never my first priority in life. For all the time that I was in physics, running was my first priority and, and physics was kind of getting the mental sloppy seconds. And... Uh, as a result, you know, maybe that's one of the reasons I just never really clicked in physics, but you have to know yourself and you have to know what you can, how much bandwidth you have and realize the point at which you're giving out no longer has as much value if you're trying to put out too much or do too much at once. Cool. And I know our time is pretty much up. Do you have time for one more point? Yeah, sure. No problem. Cool. So we talk about nutrition a lot on the show, and I was really happy to hear about you bringing forward some research about high-fat diets and low-carb diets for endurance athletes. And yeah, do you want to tell everybody what you learned? Hold on. Just let me put on my bulletproof uh, jacket and my, <laughs> my, my helmet. All right. Um, I'll be your bodyguard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, this is a complicated area. And um, how should I start here? <laughs> I will say this. Our current understanding of what's possible with different kinds of diets, including very low-carb, very high-fat diets, has changed in the last 10 years. 10 years ago, most sports nutritionists would have said, it is impossible to run a decent marathon if you're not taking in any carbohydrates. And I certainly would have said the same thing. That paradigm has shifted now. I think there's, there's, there's a lot of people who've shown both in the lab and in practice that it's possible to eat a low-carb, high-fat diet 
and not totally lose your endurance capacity. Now, the question of whether it's, as is often claimed, a better form of fueling for endurance because you have greater access to your fat stores, I think that's at best unproven. I think that some of the research I talk about in the book, which comes from the Australian Institute of Sport, suggests that you pay an efficiency price, that if you're not relying on carbohydrates for at least part of your fueling, then you're just not going to be as efficient. And so you're going to lose out in endurance performance. And, and I'm not talking about health at all right now. I'm just talking about pure endurance performance. Mm -hmm. Now, two, two caveats that I will say. One is that even if you're less efficient, it may be that some people will still be better off or still perform well on a low-carb, high-fat diet because over for ultra-endurance activities, they may be able to rely more on their stored fat stores and not have to take in fuel so they don't run into the stomach upset. That's something that a lot of people claim. I forgot what my second point was. But anyway, the, <laughs> the, 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 but I guess the in general, I think the empirical evidence is pretty pretty strong. Oh, yeah, my second point was I was going to say, okay, the empirical evidence is pretty strong that if you go to the Olympics and look at endurance athletes, they are pretty much universally eating a relatively high carbohydrate diet. Now, the point I wanted to make is that it's not this debate gets so polarized as to should you be relying on fat or should you be relying on carbohydrate. And if you talk to the people like Louise Burke at the Australian Institute of Sport, who've been studying this for 20 years with just the goal of making their athletes faster, it's like the answer is both. Of course, you want to have good yeah. access to your fast fat stores during an endurance performance. And of course, you want to have as much carbohydrate as you can. And, you know, endurance training is, you know, maybe the second most powerful way of increasing your rate of fat, fat oxidation. It really does ramp up your ability to, to access your fat. But at the same time, if you want to be able to charge up a hill or respond to a surge, you really need to have access to carbohydrate. And even, even the studies that people who are advocates of low-carb, high-fat diets, even their studies show that you lose your, your ability to hit that high intensity if you don't have access to carbs. So look, th this is a super controversial topic, and I'm not trying to pretend that I have the, the definitive answer or anything like that. And I think it's great that there's more research on this that's trying to untangle what's possible, what's desirable, because people may have different reasons for shifting their diets and so a loss of perform a little a small loss of performance may be totally fine to them if it gives them something else that they are getting out of it. But I would definitely say that the claim that LCHF diets are superior to all others for ultra endurance performance is totally not substantiated by by any evidence. It seems to be possible to do that, and that's great. It's another option. But my personal choice in terms of where I see things, both for my health and for performance, is I, I eat a pretty pretty balanced. I, I basically am still, on the, the Michael Pollan approach, which is to eat food, mostly plants, not too much, or maybe different. eat food, not too much, mostly plants. That's, that's where I'm, where I'm at. Yeah. I think you did a really great job in your book overall, just reporting and being objective about all the different research and data out there, because it is really hard whenever there's so many studies, so many different people's opinions, and also people putting pressure on you to choose a lens, choose a side. So I, I just want to commend you and say that you've done an amazing job in that book doing that. Thanks a lot. I mean, I, and of course, the result is that I I know I end up sounding a little bit wishy-washy. It's like my answer to every difficult question is, well, it depends a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B. And that's that's because that's where I see the, you know, I take a stand where I see that there's evidence to take a stand. Otherwise, my real goal is just to say, here's the evidence that I've found 
you may draw a different conclusion than I do from the evidence, but hopefully we can at least agree on what the evidence is so far. Yeah, like ultimately for some of the more inconclusive studies, it's up to the reader to make the decision for themselves. But I think having access to those studies and access to such a wealth of information that's in your book is awesome. So thank you. Well, fantastic. I, I really appreciate the kind words. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super glad to hear that you enjoyed the book. Yeah. And so where can people follow you and where can they find you if they want to hear you speak? Probably best place to find me is on Twitter at, at Sweat Science is my handle. And I'll, I post links there to any appearances I have and to any articles that I write. I have a website that's alexhutchinson.net, which is another way to, if you want to sort of check my credentials and make sure I'm not lying about my physics background or something, I think I have a, <laughs> a, a CV there and, so, and some past articles and stuff like that. I don't have like a, a book tour or anything like that, but I'm kind of making my way around the country. And when I get opportunities to speak at conferences, I try and tack on a some sort of appearance at a, running, a local running store or something like that. So I, I'm going to be in... Ottawa and Niagara Falls and probably in Santa Fe this summer and maybe San Antonio or Austin. Uh, so I've got a few few appearances coming up and I, I will definitely post details of those on Twitter at Sweat Science. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time and hopefully I'll get to connect with you in person sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, now that you're up north of the border, it's a small place, right? So I'm sure I'll, I'll see you before too long. That's right. Thanks, Alex. Okay. Thanks, Anya. Did you guys like it? Did you learn something? We barely covered topics in that book. There's so much information in there. We could literally talk all day about the book and even argue about some of the points. So definitely pick up Alex's book, Endure. It's linked up in the show notes. You can get it on Audible, on Amazon. Um, you definitely don't want to miss reading this book. I wanted to thank my podcast producer, Roma. He does an amazing job and the people behind the scenes are the ones that you don't get to see. You get to hear my voice, you get to, to hear the guests, but you don't know who's making this thing sound amazing. And I just wanna say thanks to Roma for always being there and creating amazing content for us. If you liked it, go to iTunes and leave a five-star review or a rating. So how to do that, you open up iTunes on your computer, search my show, and then there is a tab in the middle that says ratings and reviews. Click on that and you can fly at her. I really appreciate it, you guys. It really does make a difference in the visibility of the show. And if you're enjoying it, why not tell your friends about it? So thanks again. And we will see you back here next week. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. See ya.